God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 26, The Four Loves, Chapter 6, Charity, Part 2. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, myself, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, that book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. So, friends, how are you both? You know, before diving into that, can we just say wow to that quote of the week? I mean, that's like the, that's like the, the enhanced version of John 3, 6. Like that's... Teen. Oh, 16. Boom. Thanks, David. I'm always close. Gotcha. Gotcha, Batman. <laughs> Look at those Catholics trying to be evangelical. <laughs> you know the Bible belongs to the Reformation, don't you? <laughs> but I mean, that is that might go down as one of my all-time favorite Lewis quotes. I just think that's so beautiful. He drew, he described that. I'm, I'm visualizing the passion of Christ in what he did and the way he emphasizes he created us in the universe knowing that was mm. going to be coming. So mm. just absolutely beautiful. And I have to say too, before my little mini update, gentlemen, what a gift it was to listen to both of your Eros, uh, the the significant others, the better halves, the better four-fifths more likely. It's <laughs> just absolutely incredible. It was a gift to hear your talk, Andrew, of, of your journey and the passion of that in the beginning. And I had never actually heard that in that much detail. And it was so beautiful and encouraging. And you guys did a wonderful job. And I loved your vulnerability on there. And uh, David, it was just so much fun to hear the the banter and the, uh, uh, like that old married couple love between you and Marie <laughs> and all of those things. I'm like, see, this is why David has softened so much from the time I met him. <laughs> it's Marie. Shut your face. I haven't softened at all. <laughs> now, will you, now will you please get on with your update the clock is running yes yes gentlemen um well the biggest thing that i'm really excited for this happened today officially is sister miriam james is confirmed in the sense that we have a recording date and we are going to be recording i can't wait and so if you guys want to in preparation for that read her book loved as i am or i'll give her a plug right now too. her lenten book restored i've already got that baby come well it actually just came uh i had it pre-ordered so get those and I guess the only other thing for me on a, on a quick update is I'm getting excited. Lent starts next Wednesday, and I am going to be diving into, I call it Exodus 40. It's the same thing as Exodus 90, but I'm just going to do 40 days of it. And I have that along with her book, Loved As I Am, to read again and restored and be transformed by Bob Schutz, uh, all around this idea of that internal healing that can happen from uh, an encounter with authentic love itself. And I can't wait to bring her on. And I've got an actual journal I bought or I was given a gift of 
explicitly for this, to write the answers to those reflections at the end of the chapter. So listeners, if you guys can pray for me on this journey, this is going to be probably my most intense Lent and I'm ready for it. (laughs) That's good to hear. Well, for me, first of all, I actually wanted to say that according to KPBS, San Diego is now officially the most unaffordable housing market in the United States, with the median home price being $764,000. Wow. And Mm. I just wanted to say this and share the article in the show notes, because I still sometimes have people ask me why I moved to Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) There's your answer. It was like, I don't have enough money to do San Diego. <laughs> uh, secondly, I am feeling rather tired because Alexander is currently going through sleep training, uh, which means that dad is currently going through staying awake training. <laughs> sleep deprivation training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, more relevant to Pines with Jack, at the time of recording, we just had a patron event. We had a watch party to see The Fantasy Makers, which is a documentary made by Andrew Wall, who came onto the show this season back in episode 12. And this documentary looked at Lois Tolkien and George MacDonald. And to coincide with this, on Thursday, we'll be releasing an episode with Dr. Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson. She was also in the documentary. And she and I discuss MacDonald and uh, a very important book for Lewis lovers, Fantasties. So please keep your eyes out for that. And on the last episode, St. Augustine was, admittedly, very respectfully, attacked by Lewis. So if you check out our YouTube channel, you'll see that there's now a video where I go into that in more detail with Dr. Joseph Zepeda from Thomas Aquinas College, where we go into that in a bit more detail. Well, I uh, see that you're going to skip over the show notes where there was a listener who included a a forgotten line from Till We Have Faces. (laughs) Ooh, I'm drinking before our toast. I like you, Andrew, today. Yep. So I'll just uh, give a quick uh, shout out to Carlotta, who said, who put on the Slack channel, for mortals, as you said, will become more and more jealous. And mother and wife and child and friend will all be in league to keep a soul from being united with the divine nature. So also, I want you to know that there's a little uh, noise in the background that I can't avoid. It's uh, the housekeeping staff uh, vacuuming out our uh, outside of our apartment. So it's just God's provision. So you can give him thanks for that. Andrew, keep your servants in line. (laughs) (laughs) I have none. Uh, Life update. Uh, I'm a third of the way through my last semester of seminary. We're 76 days from graduation where Archbishop Rowan Williams will be here. Um, planning out Oxbridge and some exciting things to be revealed. Uh, Kristen and I talked about some things that we may be doing for Lent, and I'll tell my annual Lenten joke. Um, I have decided because you're supposed to give up something you really enjoy uh, for Lent, I'm going to give up uh, church uh, and attending church. So I think I'm doing that wrong. Um, But I will show you that uh, there's uh, the uh, sisters of the, I think it's the the little monastery of Mississippi in Iowa uh, on the Mississippi River. And one of the sisters is the one who created this (laughs) wonderful Eve consoling or Mary consoling Eve. Uh, Mm. Maybe you see that print uh, on social media um, during Christmas time. And so 
Uh, that was on my Christmas. That was on my Christmas list. I didn't get it, and so I decided to order a copy. So that will be going up in the iconostasis. So, other than that, just chugging along, and Kristen's finishing a book and and entertaining author uh, offers to write more books. But I want to know what you all are drinking today. Well, I'm enjoying an Aberfeldy Twelve which was bought for me by my sisters-in-law, now fiancé. He was the boyfriend at the time. Uh-huh. He came out to Wisconsin to visit us for Christmas, and uh, this was basically his tacit way of asking for my approval. And since I received the scotch gracefully, he knew <laughs> that he could now proceed and ask Gabby to marry him. Uh, that's a crappy dowry, dude. One bottle of scotch. <laughs> I don't know. I'm quite happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What about you, Matt? I'm continuing. It's been a while since I've reopened this packet, but I had those from Oxford. Five Lost Distillery Series scotches. Mm. So this one's from one that was opened in 1898 and closed in 1931. Towie Towie Moore. It's a blended malt whiskey. Oh, so it was opened the year Lewis was born and closed the year Lewis converted to Christianity. Oh, my goodness. Nicely picked there, Matt. Matt did that on purpose. That's exactly (laughs) right. We say to our disbelieving audience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had some of the uh, Pandaren hanging around, but I thought, you know what? I have been going too many weeks without a multi-scotch. And so my dear friend, Father Tom Reeder from uh, Christ Episcopal Church in Pontevedra Beach, sent me a while back an Ardbeg, an An Oa from Ardbeg. Mm. Oh, can you smell the peat from here? Oh, here. Swirling it in the glass so that you can smell it. Can you smell that? There you go. All right. So, and we are toasting today to Jean-Baptiste Landry. Uh, Jean-Baptiste, thank you for your support. And we drink your health and your continued blessing in the love of our Lord. Cheers. 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 Oh, that was a robust one. (laughs) A scotch or a ding? <laughs> Between my scotch and your your cheers, it's going to be one great episode. Mm. <laughs> ah, smoky and nice, much, much like myself. <laughs> great. So, David, where uh, where were we? Where recap us and let's carry on. Okay, here is a pretty quick recap of where we've got so far in the four loves. In chapters one and two, Lewis introduced the terminology of gift love and need love. He showed us how loves, such as love of country, and even the seemingly innocuous love of nature, can become demons when they're made gods. In chapter 3, we examined the love of familiar affection in Storgi. In chapter 4, we considered how philia, friendship, fortifies us against the world. Then in chapter 5, we spoke about Eros and its carnal element, Venus, which Lewis says has been taken with the wrong kind of seriousness these days. We heard about the two crowns of marriage, one of paper and the other of thorns, and Lewis wrapped up the chapter by warning us that Eros must be guarded by virtue, but it can be for us an image of Christian charity. Then last week we began chapter 6, and that very love, charity. Lewis compared the natural loves to a garden, which require tending of goodness and decency and the whole Christian life. And while the natural loves can be rivals to love of God, Lewis thought that most of us must first deal really with our own selfishness. He suggested that St. Augustine taught that we should only love God since his love is secure, but Lewis rejects this idea, saying the only place which is free from all risks of love is hell. Hmm. You know, and the one one thing I would add is 
in the very beginning, the first paragraph of last week's chapter or section, I, I put right next to it, one of his primary theses is the sentence, the natural loves are not sufficient. And that's where that garden analogy came out of. But I just found that so powerful of, of that how, the role that the divine love plays in protecting the natural loves and allowing the natural loves to become the fullness of themselves, become beautiful. And so that to me was just such a big thing. And and then also with the with the rivalry side of it, one question that I I had finished the chapter with was, all right, well, you know, if we have to be very careful with the rivalry of the natural loves with divine love, does that mean we should be really afraid of loving too much? Does that mean we need to love less? And as we're going to see this week that, well, I'll just leave it there. We'll just say, we're going to learn that answer this week. (laughs) I just was thinking about our last week's quote, and I'll read just a portion of it. Um, Wrap your heart carefully round with, oh, that's a nice sound. Beautiful, May I have some, please? (laughs) (laughs) Wrap your heart round with hobbies and little luxuries. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. And then he goes on to say the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So thus my my ongoing um, assertion that the opposite of love is self right? The opposite of love is self. C.S. Lewis says in Problem of Pain that the doors of hell are locked from the inside, right? And so that casket or coffin of selfishness, it's the dwarves who turn in on themselves and will not be taken in to a greater reality. And so love is about turning away from self, and that's um, heaven is ultimately us all turning from ourselves and being surrounded by the throne. Uh, or, or surrounding the throne. But the good thing about turning from myself is I get to see all the rest of you. And that's so <laughs> often a great thing. So with that, let's go to the text. Well, before we do that, I need to do my summary. Oh, I'm so sorry. No worries. <laughs> How dare you, Andrew? So this is my 100 word summary for the middle section of the final chapter of The Four Loves on charity. Lewis emphasizes that inordinate love is not about the greatness of the love, but about its proportion to the other loves. He explains this in the context of Jesus' words about loving and hating. Jack says love is not about feelings, but about the will. And he begins to explain the relationship between divine love and the natural loves. He says that God's nature is pure gift love, and that God implants both need love and gift love into our own nature. However, Both of these may be supplemented with supernatural versions, both in relation to God and to each other. Well, and so before we turn to the text listeners, I just want to note that that 100-word summary came in at a lean 96 words. So cheers to David for doing that. I actually threw in a a few extra words as I was reading it because I knew I was a little bit under. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, on the fly. So with that, let's turn to this week's text. Yeah, well, we left things off last time with Lewis's critique of St. Augustine, and he begins today by saying, it remains certainly true that all natural loves can be inordinate. And he then spends the rest of the paragraph considering that word and what it does and doesn't mean. And so, Andrew, since you always love talking about etymologies, can you please explain to us what inordinate means? Um, you know, it comes from the Latin ordino, (laughs) 
uh, or ordo, which I think um, yeah, I think it has to do with uh, with improperly arranged, right? And so um, I think it. Uh, so, like Lewis says, it's not insufficiently cautious nor too big. It's not a quantitative term. Um, so it, to I think what he's getting at here is inordinate means when our loves are out of proportion, right? And so just like sin is taking a good thing and putting it in the wrong place, in the same way, the worst of sins probably are our loves when they begin to replace God on the, uh, in a, put, put whatever it desires on an idol's throne in the place of God on his true throne. So in order then, I think, means out of place, out of position, not in the correct order. And of course, we know that um, that that our Lord is the creator of order. And so uh, I think that's a little bit of what he's getting at. Mm. A fire is a wonderful thing in a hearth, but not in the middle of the living room. <laughs> Unless your hearth is in the middle of your... No, I get what you mean. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lewis unpacks it in relation to the loves by saying, it is probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the man, that constitutes the inordinacy. Yeah. Now, Matt, can we tell who or what we love the most based purely on our feelings? 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt can, but for the, the rest of us maturer Christians... <laughs> That's how I determine everything. I go through my waves and cycles of my love for God based on my feelings. Good. The law of undulation as spiritual discipline. That sounds like a good Lenten practice. <laughs> you guys are like, this all makes sense why you speak the way you did in 2020, Matt. It's all about them feelings. Uh, no, no. And this, and this is what Lewis says. I mean, in, First of all, it made me think of this statement in my uh, more of a secular sense of the word. They always say people vote with their pocketbooks or our true beliefs come out with how we live or spend or our actions. And I think the same is with love. You know, how do you spend your time? You know, when push, when push comes to shove, where are you spending your time? Where are you putting your priorities? And so your love is not based on your feelings. It's it's based on how you're ordering things. Go back to that word inordinate. Is it ordinary? Ordinated properly. Mm. I don't know if I just made up a word right there. Ordered. Uh, Ordered is what you're going for. I like ordinated though. It's like, I feel like that's pretty good. Conversate. What? Converse was, you know, feeling lonely for more letters. Uh, yeah. yeah. And obviously that's a huge theme of Lewis from the screw tape letters too. You know, love is an act of will, not a feeling. You know, one thing I will say though is even though your love is not based on your feelings, I think back to a conversation I had with. Uh, a lovely lady in London who discussed the dark night of the soul and how when we do get those wonderful feelings with our relationship with God, you know, we should ask for them. We should pray for them. They are a consolation. So you can't judge your love based on them, but that doesn't mean they're a bad thing either. Uh, and they can be a really wonderful consolation. So you might go through a multi-year period where you just feel wonderful with God. And that's a gift. That's a great consolation. Enjoy that. Uh, live in that be in that. And that's actually something that Lewis said all the way back in Mere Christianity. In book three, chapter nine, he says, nobody can always have devout feelings. And even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. He will give us feelings of love if he pleases. <laughs> 
I think it's there too, where he says, does everybody want to, uh, does anybody really want to always feel the feelings that you feel in love? Right. You know, and I would, it's, yeah, it's, well, it feels like an illness, right? Your palms sweat, your heart pounds, you know, you get flushed and everything. And that's why Shakespeare says, um, my love is like a fever longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease. And so the ancients, Ovid too, often often portrayed love as, you know, romantic love as this kind of disease that overtakes you. And Lewis says, unless romantic love resolves into something steadier and adds other loves to it, um, it, it can't long survive. And that's part of the trouble with, you know, with our society and why we see so much rupture um, and, and, and trouble in marriage. Um, I think it's because we expect those feelings to to stay. But if we live in a fallen world where all of our life and all of our loves and all of our emotions are disordered, why would we expect those things to stay all the time? And it makes me long for heaven where not only will my emotions be corrected, but they will always be right about the right things. Um, and so that's that's part of, I think, the pleasures forevermore that are at the right hand of God. Angie said his palms are are sweatier. You said these things that made me think of the Eminem halftime yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's like, his palms spaghetti. are sweaty. Yes. His knees Lose weak. Palms are heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moving on, Lewis goes on to explain what he just said about inordinate loves in terms of Jesus' words, uh, and he says that Jesus' words they're far more fiercer and more tolerable than that of the theologians. When he speaks about natural loves, he talks about trampling them underfoot the moment they hold us back from him. And he quotes Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what do you guys and what does Lewis make of this verse? I pulled a David Bates here and I I looked up the word hate in Greek. I felt pretty (laughs) proud of myself, David. And uh, I was really hoping there would be some sort of deeper meaning to the word that would somewhat, because it is a strong word. I mean, that that's like hate. And unfortunately, I'll say this, I like Lewis's explanation, which I'll say in a second, but it, it showed where that word was used everywhere in the New Testament. And it really means like hate. The, the other ways that it does it, there's no softening it by looking at other contextual words and does it use in other ways. Like it is very direct the 40 times it's used in the New Testament. Yes, it's 40 times. <coughs> Distinguo, which yes. is how you how you throw in an argument. Uh, the word hate is missio, and it means, yes. according to the Strong's Concordance, I hate, I detest, I love less, I esteem less. Ooh, why did my research not come up with that? Uh, like that. That's why we don't trust the Bible to the Catholics. <laughs> no, it's why we don't restrict ourselves to a purely lexical analysis, particularly of only the first few definitions. Because if you look up the word dog, it's going to talk about a canine. But if you read the phrase reigning like cats and dogs, it means something very different. Yeah. And so here, the word, yes, it is hate, but it's part of a Semitic, it's part of a Semitic idiom to express preference. I think the real statement here is, is why we don't trust Matt with the research. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's all Greek to me, guys. Uh, There's a, a <laughs> comparative meaning which centers on moral choice elevating one value over another. And so it, it's not that I hate my family, 
But if I esteem my family over my esteem for God, then I have substituted Storgi for Agape, and love has become a demon because love has become a god. Yeah, the entire point in all I of rest this my is case. That, <laughs> yeah, the entire point in all of this is that there ultimately comes a choice. Jesus talks about serving two masters, and he says you'll love one, hate the other. And what he means is that at some point, push is going to come to shove. You're going to have to choose between one or the other, and you will choose. And he also gives the example of uh, when Jesus predicts his crucifixion and Peter says, uh, this shouldn't be, Lord. Now there you have the will of Peter and you have the will of the Father, and Jesus chooses the will of the Father. Mm -hmm. And he also gives an example of Jacob and Esau, basically pointing out that it speaks about loving one and hating the other, but they were both blessed, Mm -hmm. but only one of them was selected to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so he esteemed him less, right? Yeah. And Jack sums all this up saying, in the last resort, we must turn down or disqualify our nearest and dearest when they come between us and our obedience of God. Okay, so now this is this is where reading Lewis closely, I think, bears much fruit. In the last resort, we must turn down. And I think he means it like not deny, but more like a volume. We must turn down the volume of the voices or disqualify our nearest and dearest when they come between us and our obedience to God. You don't qualify to have the kind of obedience that I owe to God, right? And that doesn't mean to demean them. It doesn't mean to, in fact, and in fact, if I'm putting somebody on a pedestal and putting somebody in the place of God, and we've all seen teenagers do this with love, right? Where whoever they fall in love with becomes their whole world and they begin to pedestalize and idolize them. And it makes the, the person idolized very uncomfortable because who can live with that? Who could, who could live up to those things? Juliet says the same thing. Oh, who could, who could live up to the kinds of, of terms you're using? And so it's about proper ordering, I think. Hmm. That should be the theme of this entire section so far, by the way. I didn't pinpoint that ahead of this, but Andrew, I love how you explained in order in order in it. Like that that so far is a huge theme of this section and probably this book and mm-hmm. Lewis's entire life. By the uh, way, uh, let the record show that although David had the answer about out of proportion, I hadn't looked that far on the notes. And so <laughs> my my description, I came up totally without the answers in front of me. So I want some cred for that. I love it. That's why we do let Andrew do the research <laughs> or talk without doing the research. Oh, and I, one final thing I'll say that is, is it's very much Augustinian, mm-hmm. uh, disordered love, mm-hmm. inordinate love. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're bringing in Augustine in a good way here. Mm-hmm. And if you want some more examples of that, check out the Slack channel because Carlotta posted a bunch of quotations from Augustine saying just this. You know, we should cheers Carlotta, shouldn't we? To Carlotta. Yes. Cheers. To Carlotta. And you're not allowed to say anything about Tilly Faces anymore because I'm out of scotch, by the way. <laughs> There's such a thing as not enough scotch, Matt. What the heck were you thinking? <laughs> that there is such a thing as too much Tilly Have Faces. <laughs> um, no, no, there is. Oh, there, David, that was so good. There is something about uh, 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 the host's pa- uh, fallibility, though. <laughs> Oh, well, it. bringing us back to the text, uh-huh. Lewis says that in this loving and hating, the virtue of prudence, the cardinal virtue of prudence is needed because we need to know when we need to, quote unquote, hate, when we need to esteem something less, put it in second place, not first. And he says that some of us will find it too easy to 
hate our family, our spouse, our children, and others will find it seemingly impossible. And all this will depend upon our temperament. And he says that the meek and the tender, uh, they will never think that, that the time has actually come for them to place their, their loved ones in second position. And he says that the more self-assertive people, with a touch of the bully in them, they will think it's come too soon. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. he says something really interesting. Although I think it's a little hard to parse. He says, that is why it is of such extreme importance so as to order our loves that it is unlikely to arrive at all. And what is that it to which he refers? Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me just add mm-hmm. the example that he gives and we can then talk about that. Because he quotes the closing lines of a Richard Lovelace poem. I could not love thee dear so much, loved I not honour more. Beautiful. Ah. <laughs> what does he mean by all of this? And why does the poet not have to, in this case, hate his mistress? As the resident poet here, I'll take, I'll take this one. <laughs> I got this, guys. There's a couple of competing forces here. There's yourself in, in your love for God, yourself in your love for your other. And if both you and your lover are on the same page, like in this case here, loved I not honor more. You know, if both of you and your lover love honor more, you both are aligned in that way. You're not going to really be in competition between, because your your lover is going to love honor more. You're going to love honor more. And you both are going to be very much aligned with the priorities and not competing in that sense. And so I think if you both, if if both parties are in agreement with the order of loves, it's ordinated properly. <laughs> if they were both in agreement, then they would be ordered properly. <laughs> I totally ordinated. So, now word. I, I totally agree with you there. <laughs> as as also the resident linguist here, uh, creating my own languages like J.R.R. Tolkien, like just to make sure we know that he did too. Wow. Uh, I like that word. <laughs> you know, I should mention to our faces many more times just to see what adventures with language Matt would come up with. <laughs> well, yes, because I did pour a half glass to continue in case you did. I was hoping that was <laughs> off where you, where you were off to go. Um, and I think that she loves him loving honor. And I think that their love mm. is enriched because he loves mm. something beyond her, right? And I think that our wives, David, probably love in us the passions that we have, which are not even passions for them, right? Who could mm. love somebody just for how they love them in return? Hopefully our wives see something noble in us and our friends who love us see those noble things in us, which even sometimes are hard for our uh, for us to see. And so the love in some ways helps us to see each, see ourselves in that we may not give ourselves credit for being ordered as rightly as we are or loving as well as we do. And that's part of why we surround ourselves with people who love us so that we can see our, so that we can clean the mirror like Orwell needs cleaned until we have faces. Andrew, I feel like I've taught you so well uh, as a resident poet. You're learning from me, yes. my young grasshopper. Yes, I yes, appreciate it's that. true. I'm so proud of that comment you made. <laughs> yes. There's nothing about that, what Matt just said, that's right. <laughs> I think the the basic point is that the poet and his mistress, they're aligned. They, they have the same law, so to speak. They are united in the orderings of their loves. So he doesn't have to hate her because they're on the same page as to what takes precedence. They understand what the law of honor, so to speak, mm-hmm. requires. Mm-hmm. And I think this is sort of an argument about... It's often applied in terms of Christian marriage about being unequally yoked. But 
I think it does sh- it does spell out that when a husband and wife don't have shared values, that there is a conflict that is inevitably going to happen at some point. And Lewis says that that this should be known. He says it should it, it need not be explicit, just the result of a thousand talks and lots of little decisions along the way. Although I would agree, an explicit talk occasionally is good. Andrew, you're holding up till we have faces. Would you like to say something about that? I think that, that means I have to finish my whole glass now. <laughs> the book just got brought into it. But just remember what Ansett tells Orwell at the end. And Orwell's like, why didn't you? Why didn't he tell me that he was sick or weak? I would have retired him and he could have had his leisure. And Ansett says, how little you know him. You know, he lived for his duty. And mm. who was I to take that away from him? Even though I was losing him by not by not you know taking him, I'm paraphrasing. But even though I lost him because he gave himself to your service, Queen, um, I would have lost more if I had kept him at home as my lapdog. He was a man; he had to do the things that he thought was right. And this is why that's that idea. Lewis is explaining that idea right here, and so I'm pretty sure that he has that passage in mind when he's writing this one. And and. David, I have to say before we continue a little public service announcement, can we I think we need to applaud our fearless leader, David Bates. I was thinking just now in this episode that you have nailed the whole driving of the episodes with your questions. I'm thinking from the beginning of this season to now, you know, how we have all three of us, and that's a whole new dynamic. And David, it took you and I half a season to a full season to really fit our groove. And you, the way you have evolved from when we started this, because you always ask the questions, and I love the way you've done this, man. I think it's great. You, you've you've figured out how to weave Andrew and I in in a very beautiful way. Well done, my friend. Andrew and me is what he meant, and but we'll let that. Oh, is it? Is it Andrew and me? <laughs> we'll talk about direct objects another time. But yes, here's to David and his Batesian rigidity and preparation. I say this one's his Batesian flexibility because he's adapted. Yes, well done, Bates. Cheers to Bates. Cheers. Well, all of that took 90 seconds. So I'm going to move us on. (laughs) (laughs) David's like, I'm going to cut that out. (laughs) I care more about punctuality than praise. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the essay about David Bates will be in praise of punctuality. So what's next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys have heard my story with Marie now. She was getting her nails done and was 20 minutes late. I'd have much preferred her just to be on time. Okay. (laughs) That was actually probably actually got a, quite a good point at which to do it because now we, we transition <laughs> because the question that now really needs to be asked is how do we relate our human activities, which we call loves, to love, which is God himself? And this is what we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about. And Lewis says he's going to try and do this precisely, but he warns us that whatever model or symbol he uses, it's going to break down eventually. Mm-hmm. He says, we cannot see light. Though by light, we can see things. Lewis loved light. That's a metaphor he used very often. And so do the fathers in in reference to God. And here he says, statements about God are extrapolations from the knowledge of other things, which the divine illumination enables us to know. And he then gives his typical Lewisian disclaimer. If anything in it is useful to you, use it. If anything is not, never give it a second thought. Hmm. Well, and there's that humility. He's talking about the most important thing, uh, God and love, and he also realizes that his perspective is his own and uh, permits us to cast it aside. And so th- there's some Lewisian hum- humility, and that's part of why I love him. Uh, he reminds me to get over myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, he begins by repeating how we began this book with St. John's statement that God is love and saying that we've got to begin there, not with ourselves, but at the real beginning with love as the divine energy. He says this primeval love is gift love. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. Hmm. And he then addresses the Christian belief that God didn't have to create the world. Mm. Why is this important? Why is this important to this discussion about God and love? We've actually been talking about this in my um, theology, my Doctrine of God class. And so um, bear with me, I'll go deep into some theology here. There are uh, two descriptions of the Trinity. One is the immanent with an I, the immanent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, the immanent Trinity, which is about the Father loving the Son, and the love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit, and there's this kind of cycle of love between the three persons of the Trinity. Sorry, Greek Orthodox friends. No, they're they're down with the imminent trinity. Or is that what is that the one that they are? I, I was just in a discussion with someone. I can't remember which way they went. They were a little bit different than the Catholic side of things. It's yeah. about the procession of the Holy Spirit. That's where that. Yeah, that's the no. They're quit. they're fine with yep. all of that. That the love uh, that that the love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. Three completely co-equal persons. Um, but um, the so you have the begetter, the begotten, and the love between them is the, another way of stating the three persons. Uh, but then you have the economic trinity, and it means um, like the household work, I believe. And so it's the the economic trinity is that the the trinity, the love between the trinity spills out into the salva- the, the salvation of the world. So the love between the Trinity allows the, the Father to send the Son into the world and to redeem the world. So the economic Trinity is the Trinity that's always reaching out to save us from our sin. And the Trinity is eternally a community of love. The primal love is gift love. God loves God's self, and then God, out of an abundance of love, cr- makes creation fully knowing that creation will betray him and makes creation, even though Christ will have to die for it, so that God can lavish love on us humans and redeem us and take us to heaven. Yeah, And that's where our quote of the week comes in, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think you hit all of the highlights. The fact that the Trinity is a community of love, meaning God didn't need to create creatures in order to have something to love. And he not only created us out of the superfluous love, uh, he also redeemed us in love as well. Lewis actually describes us as parasites god creates his own parasites that Mm. are going to need him both in creation and in redemption and then that's that wonderful quotation that we had as the quote of the week this is the diagram of love himself yes and love by its very definition requires an object you can't just love you have to love someone or something and that's part of where the the doctrine of the trinity kind of fits together And yes, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence, wholly superfluous. That word literally means overflow, right? Super is overfluous is flow. Overflow creatures in order that he may love and perfect them, which means to make throughout, right? He creates the universe for seeing the cross. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor. And invention means to discover the finder of all loves. And he in love comes and finds us out. Thanks be to God. (laughs) I know we don't have time and we can table this for a a common room, to be honest. 
if I had to say what's one of the hardest concepts for me to believe about God, you know, I can, I can, I, I have researched and I do believe from a creation perspective, there needs to be a God. I believe God exists, obviously. Uh, study the resurrection. Those things are actually easier for me. The thing that is somewhat harder for me to believe personally is probably due to my own personal wounds uh, is, is like, why would he create us? Like it, it, it's so hard for me to actually wrap my head around this idea that he loves us so much. He desired to create something he didn't need so he could love us. And it probably has something says more about my own self-worth than it does God. But admittedly, I hear that and I, I mean, I mean, understand intellectually, but I'm like, I don't believe God would do that. <laughs> Matt, do you hope to get married someday? <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you hope to have a, have a family? Yes. Why? Why, when you've got a perfectly good wife, would you have children? And you can sleep through the night for as long as you want. <laughs> uh, you know what? That's probably the most fantastic answer. Well done, Andrew. So that need a common can, room on it. So that you can love them, right? Mm-hmm. Because the love between the two of you, right? And David is the expert here. Crystal and I don't have children. But because the love between the two of you wants to wants to extend itself wants to to reproduce Whoa. itself right it grows so strong between myself and my wife that after nine months we have to give it its own name <laughs> now please Andrew, you should be a pastor please let us let us make sure that i am not drawing an analogy to the holy trinity and to parents having children right it's not the father and the son begetting the holy spirit or whatever or and we are not the the children of God in that same way. Lewis clearly in Mere Christianity says that begetting and creating, begetting and making are two different things. Um, so it's not a, a great analogy for God creating, but God creates out of an overflow of love because there's so much love there that you want more people to experience this love, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of in some ways this divine act of invested hospitality. I've got such good stuff here. Let's have more people here so that I can share it. <laughs> That's I a great it. answer, Andrew. Yeah. So now we've looked at the nature and character of God. Lewis speaks about the love categories, which he introduced all the way back in chapter one. And that's why we that God, did all that hard work. Yeah. Exactly. He says, God as creator of nature implants in us both gift loves and need loves. The gifts loves the gift loves are natural images of himself, proximities to him by resemblance, which are not necessarily, and in all men, proximities of approach. Again, all that hard work we did right back at the beginning of the book is so we can now understand this distinction. And in contrast, neither loves don't resemble God, but they are rather correlatives, opposites. Not as evil as the opposite of good, of course, but as if the form of the blamange is as opposite of the form of the mold. Mm-hmm. And Lewis says that in addition to these natural loves that God implants into our very nature, he may give two far superior gifts. Firstly, he says that God shares something of his own gift love, which Lewis says is different from the gift loves of our nature. In what way are they different? It really comes down to the why, in the sense that the way that Lewis explained it, and I really love this, was because there's something implanted in us because we were created in God's image and God has gift love in it, we receive some of that gift love that's just inherent in him that he's implanted in us naturally. And that's a desire to pour into others. 
But Lewis makes a distinguishment that a lot of times that's pouring into people that are lovable. And the supernatural is, it's still really hard despite, while we all have an inherent desire to love the lovable, particularly our children might be a good example of that, to love the unlovable is still requires something beyond. It requires something supernatural. It's, it's quite difficult. And so he talks about loving the thing for itself, for the sake of itself, I should say. And that is a lot harder than loving it because it's lovable. But you're still giving yourself in both cases, but one of them requires, honestly, a supernatural grace, I would argue. Yeah. And that's part of why Lewis says, start with the love that you have every day, the love of yourself. You feed yourself, you breathe, you wash yourself, whatever, and then start with, start where it's easy. And that maybe it's a good Lenten discipline for some of us to, to love better. And if you're going to do that, love yourself well, but also love those around you that you already love and practice, work up your chops, because even those people that we love the most are going to frustrate and let us down. So the first gift is gift love towards others. But the second gift is that God enables men to have gift love towards himself towards God. Mm-hmm. And, and Lewis concedes that we're in sort of a sixpence, none the richer situation that we encountered in mere Christianity. Everything is God's already. So what can we actually give to him? Mm-hmm. But he points out that since it's really obvious that we can withhold ourselves, our wills and our hearts, he says, well, we can then in a sense, give them mm-hmm. to God. Mm-hmm. And, and we can also give to God in a different way through our neighbor because every stranger whom we feed or clothe is Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard an excellent example of this kind of sixpence, none the richer idea. I mean, one day you'll give your children allowances, and if they use their allowance instead of buying candy to buy something for you or for mom, how much will your, your heart melt? Um, one of my mm-hmm. uh, one of my dear friends... My kid will be smart. He'll realize he'll get a pay increase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Batesian craftiness to me. Um, one of my dear friends here at seminary he has two marvelous children his oldest is named beowulf and his youngest is asher and asher just this week went into his own cash a couple of hundred dollars to buy beowulf a a a super duper nerf gun um Mm. and then bought himself one so that he could play with beowulf with the guns (laughs) But the motive was not primarily to get himself the gun, but Beowulf really wanted this. And so he got it for his brother and went into his own pocket for it and then bought himself one so that he and his brother could enjoy that love together. That's a real example of selflessness invading Storgi. There's gift love for you. I really like that. Lewis says that everyone basically agrees that this kind of supernatural gift love, it's a grace of God. And we shouldn't, we can, you know, we can call this charity. But he then goes further, saying that God may give an additional gift, a supernatural need love of himself and a supernatural need love of one another. Mm. So before we are talking about a supernatural gift love, now we're talking about supernatural need love. And with this, he compares it to uh, magic wine, which when you pour it, it creates its own glass. Uh, God not only transforms our need of him into need love, but he also makes us more receptive to receiving charity from our fellow man. Mm. And this is the last part that we're going to look at today. Let's, let's first of all talk about need love for God. Supernatural need love doesn't create a need for God. It just helps us to recognize it and even to accept it with gladness, with happiness. Mm-hmm. 
and I want and I want to quickly stop you there because like that that when I was reading that part, it, it did dawn on me that it was that is a grace. Like imagine, I, I think of our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee, God. It's like every person has this restlessness of Augustine, and so often we search for it in money, we search for it in pleasure, we search for it in things. What a grace is it the moment when you realize that it's meant for God. That's not just inherent in us. We don't necessarily realize it's meant for God. In fact, we just feel this deep dissatisfaction and we spend, Lord willing, a small part of our lives filling it with bad stuff and a great amount of our lives filling it with God. But, you know, sometimes we spend 90% of our lives filling it with people, with not God. And finally, at the end, we realize, holy cow. So I, I really love that he pointed that out. So I wanted to stop that for a brief second and point that out. That really is a gift and a grace. Well, we should make a drinking game of this too. It'll remind us again of the end of Surprised by Joy, where he says, what then of joy? I I admit that it serves only as a, as a pointer to something other and outer. So desire points towards love. Need love points towards gift love. Orwell's aching need for love and to be loved all throughout the book. Thank you points to the fact that the God of love has been loving her all the way along, right? And when she finally realizes that all she was was an aching emptiness, she realized that that emptiness was designed to be filled by love. It's something that Psyche got, you know, before chapter two. Uh, she understood it early and it took Orwell the rest of her, uh, of her life. But I think that it's in some ways kind of a, a fable or a parable, a warning uh, for us to realize that all of our longings point to what we ultimately need, which is God. Which is Lewis's argument from desire through and through. Exactly. Jack speaks about the typical Christian expressions of our unworthiness towards God. At most church services, there will be some kind of confession or repentance at the beginning before we, before we come to God in worship. And Jack says that this is a continued attempt to try and dispel a misconception that we very often fall into. Because he says, no sooner than we believe that God loves us, then there's this, there's this impulse within us to believe that he's not doing it because he is love himself, but because we're intrinsically lovable. This is the classic screw tape trap. Mm. You know, remember where he says, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? Mm. And this is where supernatural need love of God comes in. Our natural need love never fully acknowledges our neediness. But Lewis says that grace substitutes a full, childlike, and delighted acceptance of our need, a joy in total dependence. We become jolly beggars. Mm. And he actually says that holding on to the pretense that we have anything or we can retain anything without God is one of the reasons that we're often so unhappy. He says something very similar in mere Christianity, but I love the analogy that he uses in this section. He says, we have been like bathers who want to keep our feet or one foot or one toe on the bottom. When to lose the foothold would be to surrender themselves to a glorious tumble in the surf. Which is exactly uh, the echo of God, of uh, from Pilgrim's Regress and Early Prose Joy, where we the only thing we can do is to dive in, right? Securely throw yourself in, Lewis quotes Augustine. Um, and it's it's what Orwell wants to do in the wrong way. She wants to drown herself when Orwell wants to drown herself 
When God wants her to surrender herself into the great ocean of love of God. You know, it says in Ezekiel that God exalts over us, or low lamentations, that God exalts over us with singing. But it's like, and we say, well, that's because we deserve to be sung about. No, it's like God singing <laughs> over a landfill, knowing that he will someday plow it under and make it into a garden. So grace can transform our need love of God. But Lewis says it can also transform our need love of each other. And he points out that we need charity from each other. But while it's the very thing that we need, it's the sort of thing that we don't actually mm. want. And he says we actually get offended if we discover that somebody is loving us with charity. Mm. And Jack says that spiteful people will very often go out of their way to pretend that they're loving us with charity and saying things like, I forgive you as a Christian. <laughs> Pop quiz. Which Lewis characters say that? Oh, I, yeah. That's in the second best book. <laughs> It's in The Controlling Mother, and it's also very similar to uh, the man who wanted his rights, mm -hmm. who wouldn't ask for the bleeding charity. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything that's, that hasn't been said uh, before by Sister Marion James, and I, I'm actually going to probably take this and use it in one of the questions. Her life is a perfect example of it. I heard her story on The Pints with Aquinas, and in a time when she felt incredibly unlovable and was living in a way that she felt very unlovable of God's love— a priest showed her an immense amount of agape, of charity, and that was transformational to her. And I think that really fits with exactly what is being said here. She, she needed, she had a need love of others, but she needed something more than, most people wouldn't be able to provide the love she needed because she didn't feel super lovable. And I, I want to be very careful not to put words into her mouth, but I, 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 that's how I somewhat interpreted that but it speaks to the grace of God because she could actually receive that mm. because we want to be loved for being us, for being so incredible, for our cleverness, our beauty, our, our, our usefulness. And in the book, Lois gives the example of a, of a spouse who's completely dependent upon the other, but we don't even have to go that far, that extreme, because he points out that there's something in all of us that is not naturally lovable. It just, it just isn't. Mm -hmm. And we have to be loved with charity. And that's the only thing that, that can do it. Uh, and he says that everyone who has good parents, wives, husbands, children may be sure that at some times and perhaps at all times in respect to one particular trait or habit, they are receiving charity, are loved not because they are lovable, but because love himself mm -hmm. is in those who love mm -hmm. them. So in Sister Miriam's example, we see grace, we see charity on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. The very fact that she was able to receive this love and the very fact that this priest was able to show her that love just shows you that the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Mm. The Holy Spirit was at work in that situation. Do you think it would be fair to say, you know, we need this supernatural that in the Catholic faith and in, in other ones as well, and I assume in yours as well, Andrew, the, the sacrament of marriage, the idea that a, a divine grace is necessary Honestly, to make it work, there, there's a reason there's <laughs> such a high divorce rate among people, and it's because of that sentence, David. Like you almost said, that, like there's something in all of us that can't be naturally loved. Thus, we need something supernatural. We need the divine, the divine grace to pour into us in the sacrament of marriage to make it possible. I see Andrew shaking his head. Divine love. Away. We need divine love to make anything work. And if we mm. think that something will work without divine, w without divine love, it'll soon sputter and die like an old engine. 
No, we need it. We need it for everything. And I think that if we were to, instead of trying to avoid the love of God or the need for God, who is love, and just wallow around in the three natural loves, if we started with the divine love of God that we couldn't ever possibly earn, and then saw that love echoed in our natural loves, I think we might be more happy people. But the highest doesn't stand without the lowest. It's true. And so actually one of the very functions of these natural loves is to point us to the something that is greater. Because we see in Storgi, in Philia, uh, and in Eros, we see images of that ultimate love. We see the way that these things are long-suffering, the way that uh, the lover doesn't look to himself, but to his beloved. We see all of this foreshadowing for something greater that we're ultimately going to need if anything is to last. Absolutely. I think that's a great last word. Well, and with that, um, I hear the last call bell here at the pub. And I'm actually off to go have dinner um, with three of my best friends here at seminary. So I'll be practicing philia and we'll be raising a glass uh, to you all at the Italian place. Mm. Um, and speaking of raising a glass, we also raise our glass to our wonderful Patreon supporters. We'd like to thank them all, especially our top tier supporters that who include Thomas, Deborah, Hey, Nani Mouse, Bill and Joanna, <laughs> Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian and Kay. Paul and Gimberly, Gillis and Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris and John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And we encourage you, please, to join us next time. When we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>